I have a special guest for you on the progression show. I have the CEO of over eight multiple seven-figure businesses. That's right, he owns eight businesses that make over seven figures. I get to interview Ali Zamani. Now, Ali is a friend of mine and we started our relationship on social media and I started checking out what he was doing. I said, okay, you have a beautiful home, you're a father of four, and, and so I wanna understand and get to understand the work-life balance. So, so today, I'm gonna get to interview him of an individual who has eight businesses, has four kids, and has done very well for himself in door-to-door. -door. See, door-to-door, -door, going door-to-door, door-knocking, door I've done that before. And it's a brutal job to go door-to-door -door and sell your product. And I get to understand and go deep into the mind of someone who's done door-to-door -door and has generated over a billion dollars in sales. Today, I get to interview Ali Zamani. Let's get started. Hey, Ali! What's happening, buddy? How you doing, brother? I'm well, I'm well. Thanks for having us here today. Yeah, welcome here, man. We got the whole squad at the house. Let's go, baby. Man, hey, we got your puppies, man. You got, what's the name of your puppy? That's butter and peanuts inside. So we got peanut and butter. Hey, come here, baby. Okay, this dog is kind of scared. There you <laughs> go. So Ali, yep. Ali, we got you on today on The Progression Show, and I'm so excited to have you here on the show. And uh, you know, let's start off with taking a tour of the house. This is uh, basically where the entire house started. My wife wanted, uh, mm. you know, uh, contemporary and I wanted uh, Mediterranean. So the whole house started with this one table and uh, we went from there, been here for a couple of years now. If you guys want to follow me, I'll show you the rest of the house. We got the, uh, the upgraded uh, iron rod staircase with the matching iron rod paintings. And we got crown moldings and wing coat on all the walls across the house. This here is the master bedroom. Wow, this is amazing. Yeah, so over here you got the, uh, the master bathroom area, you got the walk-in closet. Uh, don't mind the mess, we're just cleaning up right now. Got a little living area here for me and the wife. Look so, at this, come, come on over yeah. here, check this out. So we got about 16 cameras in the house, inside and outside, and uh, on all the TVs and on our phones, you get an entire view of the entire house at all times of the day. All 16 cameras are recording. So anytime I want to feel like Scarface, I just come up here and I take a look at this. <laughs> so how do, why do you have all these cameras set up in your home? You know, um, honestly, I bought the house with a lot of the cameras in place. And, uh, you know, I got a wife and four kids and they're my entire life. So you can never be too safe, right? Right, right. Yeah. Now, now if you, we can fit more, maybe we can get 20. <laughs> yeah. Now you own a company that provides this. So I, uh, I own a company, American Smart Home, and our core competency is uh, water filtration. And uh, maybe we can discuss that a bit more outside. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Oh, we want to put your glasses on. It's kind of sunny it's out here. right out here. So anyways, wow. you got the world's biggest balcony here that I haven't even attempted to furnish because I'm not even sure where to start. But uh, this is you a get beautiful the best view, view out here. Yeah. It's nice and calm and serene. So you get to watch all the kids here. You get some nice mountain view over here. Obviously, you got some snow on the mountains there. Only in California can you get the same view with palm trees and uh, snow in the mountains there. That's beautiful. And at nighttime, you get a nice view of the city here, of the Inland Empire. So yeah. So what is this house worth? This house is a seven-figure house. Uh, I've owned it for a couple of years now. Seven figures. Yeah. That's over one million dollars. Seven figures. I'm sure there's, there's, a, there's a mindset attached to it. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, uh, growing up, you know, my story is... I was a uh, refugee born in Iran, so I'm Persian. 
And, uh, you know, I was born in 83. And uh, in 88, um, we decided to uh, immigrate as refugees to Canada, Toronto. And, um, you know, growing up, uh, it was very tough coming into a new country, not speaking the language, not knowing the culture. Um, everything was brand new to us. And, you know, in 1979, you had a revolution in Iran. And anybody that stayed post-revolution, you got hit with this decade-long war with Iran and Iraq. So in the 80s, I was a uh, you know, victim of a war zone. You know, my parents decided to leave and come to Canada, landed there. You know, when you don't know the country, when you don't know the language, when you don't know the culture, the easiest thing to do is go on welfare. So that's what happened. You know, we went on public assistance. I grew up the majority of my childhood on welfare until the age of 19, actually. Mm -hmm. What was the transition like to go from Iran to Canada? You know, I was a lot younger at the time. I was around five years old. And, uh, you know, I came with my mom, my dad, and my older sister. But, you know, growing up in the northern part of Iran, you know, my dad was one of 12 children. My grandfather was really successful back home. So, you know, my dad came from a background of wealth and yeah. success and basically had to leave everything that he knew and his family, his friends, his lifestyle. And we hopped on a one-way flight from Iran and landed in Toronto, Canada. And uh, it's a pretty powerful story. You know, we had some... Why, why Canada, not the U.S.? You know, at that time, that's where, you know, the cards fell. And okay. we ended up in Toronto. But, uh, you know, my dad basically sold off everything that he had. Ended up getting us some... Uh, true story, actually. Fake passports from uh, Paraguay. <laughs> hopped on a one-way flight to Toronto. Uh, destroyed the passports on the plane ride over. Flushed it down the toilet. We landed uh, in Customs and Immigration... And they asked us, where did you come from? And, you know, I guess my parents' response was, well, we don't know because we're escaping, you know, the war back home. And uh, they had no idea where to send us back. So we went from refugees to landed immigrants, went on welfare and public assistance. And then eventually, through the course of one or two decades, became citizens and built a life in Canada. And then only recently, over the past maybe eight or ten years, I kind of uh, came down south into the U.S. and expanded across multiple states. And, and uh, what did you expand? Pardon me? What was it that you expanded? So anyways, when I, uh, I grew up, uh, I went to high school. And uh, like every teenager, I had a lot of negative influences. And um, what I know about human beings is we're very competitive by nature. Yeah. And I'm an alpha. And that's an understatement. So I wanted to be competitive with my group of friends. So a lot of the goals at the time were not the goals I have now, right? How do you cut class and how do you drink underage and how do you go to clubs yeah. and start fights and all that stuff. So I was number one in my group of friends. And it got to the point, uh, grade 11, I actually failed grade 11. And I'm, let me stop, let me stop yeah. you right there. So over the course of the, your 30 plus years in life, yeah. you created a, a successful, I mean, we're at your beautiful home yeah. and you've created a successful life for yourself. Where does that stem from, your alphaness? Where does that stem from? You know, I just think a lot of times when you grow up with tough circumstances, you got to kind of make do with what you have. So that, that, that work ethic was embedded in me. I was never privileged. Things weren't handed to me, so I had to work my fucking ass off. Um, what, what does that look like? Like back in the day, you work, you work. Well, I mean, I got my first job at 12 years old, you know. True, 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it was cash job. Uh -huh. But, you know, you, you get irritated when everybody gets a Super Nintendo and you're only getting the Atari and you're two systems behind. You want to find a way to get money. You yeah, get yeah. motivated to contribute. So I went door to door, ironically, at 12, dropping off flyers, 
At 14, got a job at a call center doing telemarketing. Uh, you know, at 15, I got a job at a gas station. 16, first official job at McDonald's. First and only job I've ever been fired from. Uh, that was your last job? That was your first job that you, ever, that you well, got fired? first official job on payroll. Okay, yeah, yeah. I got fired because I showed up late too many times at drive-thru. Um, 18, got a job at a factory. 19, got a job moving. And then part of my story was, so grade 11, I failed. And I went through a lot of pain not being able to pass, you know, uh, a grade. And my mom sat me down and said, listen, we left our country to come and give you this newfound opportunity. Right. And, uh, you know, I was diagnosed with ADHD in grade one, attention deficit hyper disorder. So I usually am kind of all over the map, but that's really kind of helped me embody the creativeness I have and the passion within. So anyways, I failed grade 11, took summer school, took night school, <clears throat> ended up passing. And my mom said, you know what, one year, dedicate yourself for one year to school. And I did. Uh, grade 12, got away from a lot of the negative disassociations I had. And Which were? The friends I, uh, I hung out with. What's an example of a story that would say that they were bad or not? It's not that they were bad. It's just at that time, you know, you don't have your uh, moral compass in check. And at that time, you're not thinking about your future. You're thinking about the now. So you make a lot of decisions that are counterproductive for your future. Skipping class to go and, you know, drink. So give me a, give me a story about how, you know, one situation at your high school, how was that like? And, and it, so I want to see visually yeah, kind, yeah, yeah. kind of kind of what was going on back then. You know, back, back then, you know, um, you'd have, uh, it'd be a weekday and, you know, you'd be walking around in school and it was lunchtime and you're trying to, you know, prove to everybody why you're a badass. Is so, that what you were doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to, I was trying to stand out. Like, look at me, I'm a badass. I'm a teenager. So what'd you do to, to, to show that? I would fight. I would fight a lot. Yeah. Oh, shoot. Yeah. I was always known for the guy that would throw the, the first punch in a fight. So I'd walk around with like a chip on my shoulder, right? I'd, yeah. I'd be looking for that one dude that looked at me the wrong way. And this is in school, not just at clubs. And I'd, I'd walk around and I'd, uh, I'd be trying to find some beef for no reason so I can swing that punch and I can feel empowered because that's how I measured myself, whether you want to call it success or not. I measured myself by my ability to impress other people. And what impressed other people is doing a lot of the wrong things. And to I was to grab attention. Yeah. yeah. And I became the biggest loser, right? Because I, I did everything better, which adversely was worse, but I did everything better than everybody else, right? And I skipped the most classes and I drank the most beers and I started the most fights and I did a lot of things I shouldn't have done. So when grade 12 came, I said, you know what? Time to get laser focused. And I did for one year. I went from failing grade 11 to getting a 94% average in grade 12. Not only that, I got a scholarship to university, University of Toronto, one of the highest rated universities in the city. And my undergrad was in accounting and I was getting ready to gear up to apply for law school and I was gonna become a corporate lawyer. So I had this 10 to 12 year trajectory of education, getting a half a million dollars in debt to learn how to make a six figure income. <laughs> then this happened. Then I started a summer door to door sales job. How old were you? Yeah, I was 19 at the time. Okay. And uh, the most money I'd ever made in a week was, you know, 400 bucks. Prior to this door-to-door. -door. Prior to this door-to-door. -door. Okay. And I had a few months off until school started. So I said I might as well work this new job and make money. <clears throat> Two things didn't resonate well with me, you know, door-to-door -door and commission. And to me, I felt like I was above that. I'm, I'm going to be a lawyer. You were, you were above what? I was above door knocking. Mm. I'm not going to go degrade myself and knock on doors. Plus, I need 
you know, a cushy salary. I'm going to be a lawyer. I don't want to go and knock on doors, but it's, you know what? It's temporary. There was this great startup in Toronto. They were brand new. Nobody knew what was going to happen. So I took a chance, worked for the summer, made about $50,000 over the course of the summer. Get out of here. Yeah. So summer's done. How many months is it in that summer? Three? You know, uh, probably another month there, four months for me. Four months. Yeah. So you did over $10,000 yeah. in income per month. Yeah, about 12000 13000 a month. And the most you were making before that was $400. $400 a week. Yeah. And, and were you, did you ever do sales before that? I mean, I did telemarketing and like some random things along the way, but I, I was not a born salesperson. Um, you know, it, it was a learned skill. And I really went outside of my comfort zone. And that's one of the lessons I learned early on is first I was forced into it through my childhood and then into adulthood, which is one of my key sayings now is you have to become uncomfortable or sorry, rather, you have to become comfortable being uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Gotcha. And uh, it was very uncomfortable for so me. So hold, hold on, hold on. What's yeah. that mindset? Like, like to go from a, a salary of 400 or whatever, however you were making that money, yeah. to go into no, no, no salary, no cushion. No security. No yeah. security. That's right. And making commission only. Like what, what, what happened in your brain to make that switch? You know, at that time I was very young and impressionable as many people are. And I came into an environment where there was dozens of other people doing it. And it was like this happy, positive, passionate, energetic environment. And I didn't understand it. How can people be so motivated on a Monday? Why are people <laughs> reading motivational books? Yeah. Why are we looking at these motivational videos? And um, it, it was really kind of a culture shock for me, but I came in and um, I just adapted to the environment. Gotcha. And one of my favorite quotes is uh, Charles Darwin. And he says, it's not the most intelligent of species um, that are successful. It's the ones that are the most adaptive to change that sustain over an extended period of time. So I came into an environment I was unfamiliar with, right? Just door, like, to door to door sales. Door to door. Just uh -huh. like when I came in as an immigrant kid into the language or into the country and I didn't speak the language. You know, when I get into these spaces where I'm unfamiliar and, you know, uncomfortable and I have a lot of like fear and discomfort, that's when I've actually learned how to thrive. So I came into this business. So would you say that's a good thing for the, for the viewers that are watching? Would you say that's a good thing to go into uncomfortable positions and yeah. where, where you have fear? See, um, first of all, fear, the acronyms uh, stands for false evidence appearing real. Wow. And what happens is we take this God-given gift of our mind and we worry. And the dictionary definition of worry is using your mind to create the worst possible scenario. 99% of the shit that we think of won't actually happen. And if it does happen, you can't even change the course anyways. So if you're gonna use your mind, you might as well create the best possible scenario. People fear things because of the consequence, the unknown. So what I did is I prided myself on going outside of my comfort zone. That's where progression happens. That's where success happens. And all the progress you're looking for your life is on the other side of comfort. So if you're uncomfortable doing something, do it more. Mm. You don't like working six days a week, work seven days a week. You don't like doing something, do it more. That's the only way you're gonna grow. Because if you're not growing, you're dying. Gotcha. So how important is, is progression over a, like immediate success, like the lottery? How important is that slow progression of growth versus immediate wins like lottery? The problem with social media is they've magnified this impression that there's such a thing as overnight success. And unfortunately, everybody's given this platform where they can build their own fabricated narrative. And then people see an ad where they see a page, swipe up, get rich, take my course, be successful. And it doesn't exist. It actually took me 
15 years to become an overnight success. Everybody wants to hang out at the finish line. Nobody wants to run the race. And social media magnifies that. What I've learned in my career, there's not this one key to success or this one defining moment or this one big thing that happens. It's a collection of small things. Success is the sum of small actions repeated consistently. So progression is what it's all about. Don't pursue perfection, pursue progression. I love that. Yeah. Now, now in, in your progression over your business and over your life, what has your successes amounted to as of today? All right. So, um, I'll quickly finish off that story. I came with a startup, made a bunch of money, dropped out of university. Parents had a conversation with me, gave me the ultimatum, either go back to school and quit your job, or if you're gonna drop out, then you gotta move out of the house, right? Yet another moment where I felt pain from family, from friends. Nobody really believed that Ali's gonna drop out of university with a scholarship to go and be a fucking professional door knocker. But that's what I did, that pain drove me. Made six figures my first year when I turned 20 years old. Long story short, this startup out of Toronto, Ontario, ended up becoming a $5 billion publicly traded North American entity. And I grew with them over the years. Went from door-to-door sales rep to team lead to managing uh, an office, managing multiple offices. Became a millionaire at the age of 26. And at my highest point, around 27, managed just shy of 500 sales reps, North America-wide, spread across provinces in Canada, states in the U.S., and earned over eight figures in commissions and had sold over a billion dollars with me and my organization over the course of about 13 years. Then, around two years ago, you know, we we ended up parting ways. Because when you're part of a big company that's, uh, you know, uh, ran by shareholders and um, oh, by a board it. of directors. Mm-hmm. When you start making more money than everybody, you get a moving target on your back. When you make too much money and you have too much control, that's when you get a bullseye on your back. And uh, you know, making more money than the CEO is a really cool thing to say, but not a cool place to be. So long. Story but you started short, that. You started off with that company when they were Zip. Yeah, exactly. Like, what was? What did it look like? What did you have an office to go to? What did it actually look like when you? I, I worked out of a sales office. I was a door-to-door sales rep. I would literally get into a van. I would have a uniform, a presentation, a binder, and a badge, and I'd get dropped off. And I'd literally go door to door. And this is not in this beautiful weather of California. <laughs> we're talking about Canada, right? Where it gets minus fucking 40. Oh, shit. <laughs> so I'm walking with snow up to my knees with three layers of clothing. Damn. I would actually have to keep extra pens in my sock because the ballpoint would freeze up at the door. And I'd go door to door from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. I called it 8 to faint. Monday through Saturday, sometimes Monday through Sunday. And I'd work on commission. And that's where I learned, and Jamie Foxx says it best, one year of door-to-door and direct marketing is equivalent to a four-year degree in communications. I believe it. I don't have formal education. I learned everything through the process of door-to-door. So anyways, you fast forward, two years ago, you know, me and this big company, we part ways. Right. Um, not voluntarily. So I'm at a point now where I got a big decision to make in my life. And <clears throat> real quick, there's this book called The Everything Store, and it's the biography of Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. And what he talks about in that book is something that he coined uh, regret minimization framework. Hmm. And that's just a nerdy way of saying, minimize the amount of regrets in your life. 
And uh, his story is he was uh, in his early 30s, 31 years old, a prominent Wall Street executive and making a six-figure income working for a big firm in Manhattan. Um, that was during the dot-com boom in the early to mid-90s. So in 94, he had this incredible wild idea of creating an online book retailer. Yeah. Initially, the company was called Cadabra, which stood for Abracadabra. Mm -hmm. So it's cadabra.com, which eventually grew into Amazon. And he went to his family and his friends and his coworkers, and he explained his concept of starting as an online book retailer and eventually being the largest online retailer. And he was gonna change the way that people purchased from retail, from brick and mortar to fucking click and order. And that was his mindset. Nobody believed him. He heard the incredible laughter of everybody else. And this regret minimization framework, what it means is, he says everybody in their life is gonna have regrets. Some big, some small. Some will sustain, some will dissipate. But what he does is the foundational basis of the biggest decisions in his life is he fast forwards his life many decades down the road. And then he reflects back on his life as his future self. Hmm. And he said the pain of not knowing whether or not Amazon could be successful was a deeper pain than having tried and having failed. failed. Got so it. that was the basis. So how I correlate that to me is I'm working with a $5 billion company, hundreds of sales reps making a seven-figure income, earned over eight figures, generated over 10 figures. My life's pretty fucking set at 32 years right. old. I'm married. At that time, I had three out of four kids. I'm in a good spot. And the, the foundational infrastructure of my decision was if I make this decision to venture out on my own and really become an entrepreneur, I only called myself an entrepreneur two years ago, not the 13 years before. Nowadays, everybody's a fucking entrepreneur, right? Right, right. You update your bio, it's, it's too easy. It's <laughs> yeah. Social media. Yeah, right, right. But two years ago, I ventured out and I said, if I lose what I've spent 13 years to build, when you're 32, you can't live out of a dorm room and eat a can of beans and afford to eat shit. When you, especially when you have kids. Yeah, you have kids, you got responsibility. I got this extravagant lifestyle, high standard and expectation and cost of living. I can't afford not to make money. What's harder than making seven and eight figures is losing it and doing it again. But again, the basis of my decision was, if I don't become an entrepreneur and start my own companies, that's gonna bother me for the rest of my life. So I literally walked away and forfeited everything I spent over a decade building to yet start again. And at 32, I started, I'd never raised capital. I self-funded the venture with seven-figure seed capital. I built the business from the ground up built proof of concept, and now with American Smart Home and Smart Home Pro, um, two of the many companies I founded, last year we just closed out 2018. It's our second year, but our first full calendar year, and um, it's a pretty big milestone for me. We achieved eight figures, over 10 million, our first full year in business, with me having never actually built my own business, but having worked for a multi-billion dollar company. So I, I literally risked everything, and I ate shit for a couple of years, and now I'm starting to see some of the benefits of uh, that big risk I took. Yeah, I see, I see a familiar, familiar, familiarity in your yeah. story with a lot of successful people, that they start working for someone else, and they understand the business aspect of it, yeah. and they go out and do, the, do it themselves. <clears throat> That's actually what I did when I my first business. I worked for someone who owned cell phone stores, and then he showed me the ropes, showed me the way to do it. 
Then I opened up my own cell phone store. That's and right. That's where I did my first million before I turned Progression 21. Mobile, right? Progression Wireless, yeah. Wireless, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Progression Wireless. That's right. Before I turned uh, 21. And that's when I moved to California. That's amazing, man. That's when I moved to California. So in, in your story, how important is it to have that mentorship <clears throat> to be successful? Or do you believe that you could have just woke up one morning without ever going door to door and do it yourself? No, uh, mentorship is key, but during my time, I had good mentors and I had bad mentors. I had mentors that um, would really use me, wouldn't really teach me, and I was just a dollar sign in their eyes and in their mind. And that's okay, you need bad. So is that a good or is that a bad? That's a bad mentor, okay. right? Not even a mentor, but bad manager. And I, and I learned from them, because in life, you learn from your successes, but you also learn from your failures. So having mentors like that accelerated the learning curve because I was able to go through that pain um, at an expedited rate. The good mentors I had were the people I worked with. Now I had physical mentors of people I worked with, but too many times nowadays, people, uh, you know, you probably get this. The, the number one DM I get other than what fucking book do you recommend or do you have a course I can take is, can you be my mentor? Mm -hmm. And I think mentorship now in this day and age with literally social media and the internet and having access to everything at your fingertips, you can get online mentors without ever having met them. Your mentors are Google, they're YouTube, they're your entrepreneurial websites that you can check out. So there's no excuse nowadays, because during my time growing up, when social media wasn't that prevalent, I only had one option, right? I may have dropped out of actual university, but I enrolled in automobile university <laughs> so you better be damn uh, sure that i went out and i bought books and i bought cds and i would sit down and i would listen to that stuff because the moment i really learned the power of self-education is when my career and my life changed because you have to be learning if you're not learning and you're not growing you're actually moving backwards a lot of people in life you know every time a day passes or a week passes or a month or a year in their mind, they have this very dismissive nature like, oh, that's okay, you know, starting Monday, starting next week, starting next month, or like the majority of the population, starting next year. You know, the New Year's <laughs> the resolution. January 1st, yeah, right, yeah. right, right. We're in February now, 95% of New Year's resolutions, they've, they're, they're fucking done, nothing's happened. But the point being is, with self-education, I said, I need to learn, because it's either every day I'm moving forwards and I'm progressing, or I'm moving backwards. To the contrary, there is no standing still. If I don't do anything today to move closer to my goals, my objectives, and learn and progress, then I'm not where I was yesterday because I've actually lost one day of my life. So when you take every day and every hour that seriously, and you really understand the impact of small, consistent progression, that's what it's all about. So yeah, you know what, maybe I didn't go to school and spend 10, 20K a year sitting in a big classroom with a, a textbook that was written 100 years ago with no application in the real world. You know what I'd rather do? Spend $11.99 on fucking Audible, download a book by Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, Tom Hopkins, Tony Robbins, Maxwell Maltz, Robert Greene. Andy Audet. Andy Audet, uh, yeah. yeah. Pretty soon, Ali Zamani. And, and, and learn, learn from other people. Whatever their background is, you can learn from other people. I have this, it sounds really cliche, but you know, I have this saying, first you learn, then you remove the L. So you need to learn in order to earn. So I see that you earned a nice toy that's over there. Yeah, you wanna go see it? A blue Lamborghini, hell yeah, I wanna go see it. Yeah, that's the second one, I'll go show that's you guys right a, that's now. That's the second one? 
Well, the first one was a Giardo. I got that, I think, four years ago. And now I got a Huracan with a really special wrap. So this toy, what does this toy represent to you? Um, you know, obviously growing up as a child, we all had motivations and goals and ambitions. And this is something that's material. So the reality is this is superficial bullshit. Um, but what it represents to me is growing up during my childhood, you know, all the stories of the food stamps and public housing and watered down ketchup and the tough times growing Damn. up. Damn, watered yeah. down ketchup. Bro, can I, can I see the, the white phone? You know, the tough times growing up, this to me is something that was iconic during my time. You know, I didn't know what it meant to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know what success was. To me, as a child, success was a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. And, you know, I grew up my entire childhood absolutely obsessed with getting one of these. So naturally, you know, after my business uh, thrived and I did yeah. well, it's something that I had to get. It was a representation. Naturally, it serves your ego to have an exotic car, but uh -huh. to me, this is a lot more. This is something that I spent 15, 20 years idolizing getting one. So this now was that your you vision. actually get one. This was your vision. This was my vision, one of my visions, yeah. And, um, you know, cars are a liability, but if it's leveraged correctly, it's actually an asset. So when I got this car, I grew my business from 150 sales reps to almost 500. So I tripled my business. By getting this car. Yeah, obviously, people seeing me driving this car, that added some value and carried some weight. But what it did for me, uh, real quick before we get in the car, Abraham Maslow, he talks about the five hierarchy of needs. And in that hierarchy, at the top of that pyramid is self-actualization, which is the image that you hold of yourself. When you grow up in the struggle, and I'm not embellishing the story, I literally grew up in the fucking struggle. What you do is you, you lack confidence. No mm. matter how great of a childhood you have or how great your parents are, you lack that confidence. And getting something like this, basically what it did for me, it embodied the vision I had, but it also helped me build my confidence that, hey, you know what? You're now that person that you looked up to growing up, and this boosted my confidence, empowered me, right? And really enabled me to really grow my business through growing my mindset. So this car, it started with growing my mindset and then my confidence, and then inevitably it grew my business as well. I love that, I love that. Yeah. So did you write it off as a business assistant? Oh yeah. <laughs> Let's take it for a spin, right? right? And he's driving. Oh, well, how do you do it on automatic right here? Uh, well, you're already in automatic right now. Yeah, so just lift up the car here, press this button, and we're gonna go into sport mode too. You can rev the shit out of it. Just pull out here and then just go on an angle to your left, and we should be good. So let's let's tap into that a bit. Okay. The, your family, your family life. Yeah. You know, because not only not only yourself, but I'm around a bunch of entrepreneurs, and that's questionable. The, the, the family balance versus the, the you know, the, yeah. fa the family balance versus the, the career. You know, talk to me about that. What's your philosophy behind that? Okay, so I spent literally a fucking decade. I spent all of my 20s trying to find something that didn't exist. Everybody's heard of it. It's called, uh, you know, work-life balance. Work-family uh, work balance. And uh, I spent all of my 20s trying to find this and I came to the conclusion a few years ago in my early 30s that um, 
A, it doesn't exist, and B, I don't actually want it. First of all, balance, balance is boring. Mm -hmm. Nobody seeks balance, and people that do. So if you're, if you're not seeking balance, what is it that you're, that okay, you're seeking? Okay, so the problem with seeking balance for me is in order for me to which have one, which balance. One's, which one's quiet? Quiet, Strata right there, there you go. So in order to have balance, what you have to do is you essentially have to neglect one area in order to focus on another area. So I don't want to neglect or negate any part of my life. I want to have simultaneous fulfillment in every area of my life. So what's important to me is not balance. I don't believe in balance. I don't want balance, nor do I want moderation. I want to be able to thrive and I'm enthusiastic and passionate about life in every area of my life. So instead of me trying to like segregate the two, it's not about work-life balance and separating the two, it's about work-life harmony. How do they work in correlation to each other? How do you make them congruent? How do they intertwine? So, so for is me, there an area in your life that you're more, that, that's more elevated over other areas? Oh yeah, for sure. A lot okay. of areas of my life, um, you know, my, 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 my financial life and my career life and especially my family life, um, I'm excelling in. There's other areas that I fall behind on. Um, you know, recently uh, I've really picked up the educational aspect, so I've gotten really heavy back into self-education. I've uh, fallen off in the arena of physical and health. I'm not working out as much as I should. So for me, I just try to figure out how do I, how do I have harmony in my life? How do I have all these different areas of my life work with each other. So that's what I look for. I look for harmony, harmony. not so, balance. So so you, what you're saying, your message really is create work-life harmony with is the, the the bringing the two together. Oh yeah. Instead of instead of separating that okay, I only do work 8 hours a week or I, I mean 8 hours a day and and family life, you know, this certain amount of hours. You're saying yeah, yeah. make it work together. Don't 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 separate the two. Combine them together. Harmonize them. So I wake up. So on how does average. that work? How does how how does that actually work? All right. So I wake up on average 5 a.m. Obviously, I have four kids. I wake up at 5 a.m. Average night, I'll go to bed around maybe midnight, one o'clock in the morning. On a good day, I'll get six hours. Average five hours. I could probably go off a four-hour sleep if I need to as well. So from the moment I wake up to the moment I sleep, you can consider that uh, hours that I work or hours that I live, depending on which way you look at it. For me, I'm not like that one person that can have this cookie cutter day where from this time to that time, I'm doing this. Certain things I need to carve out, but for me, I'm very free spirited and I wanna be able to work when I work and live when I live. If I wanna spend time with my family at two o'clock in the afternoon, I don't have this internal clock that I only work from nine to five. Because the reality is when it's 8 p.m. and I get a phone call and I'm sitting at dinner with my family and if it's something that's important and it gets sprung up on me, I may have to leave dinner and be able to take that call. So different priorities come up it's like being a firefighter, right? You go into a blaze and different fires come up. Some of it requires your attention immediately and some of it doesn't. So for me, it's like I'll prioritize things and I wanna make one thing fucking clear. I don't care what anybody says. For me, even though the business and the work and the career has created and empowered my, my life for me and my family, family's number one. Don't fuck with my family. Family's number one all the time, every time, every day. Um, so I'm always gonna choose my family, but my family also understands that the way my wife and my kids understand that this, this standard of living, this lifestyle that we have, is as a result of the sacrifices I make 
and adversely they make as well. So not only am I selfless, they're selfless as well. It's a combined effort, it's a combined sacrifice, and you know, this this platform of the career creates the lifestyle that we live. So, so everybody wife, gets that. Did your wife ever get mad with like you leaving the dinner table? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay. It's, so that's part of it. Yeah, it's just it's <laughs> nobody has a picture perfect life. Um, what we do though in our in our marriage and any successful relationship, partnership, um, whether it's your parents or your kids or your spouse, it requires effort. As long as you understand that every day you need to be able to put in effort. I put in effort with my wife. Just because we've been together and we have a lot of kids doesn't mean anything. I go out of my way, whether it's you know getting roses or being thoughtful or letting her know that she's loved, these are things that you have to do. It requires effort. What people don't realize is in the beginning of a relationship, they put in more effort than ever, but they don't realize it because in the early days, I think we just ran over something. I think it was a cup. Okay, got it. A lot of people don't realize that that effort dissipates and that that's what creates dysfunction in relationships is the lack of effort. Because you believe, because hey, I've known this person for a while or we've had this relationship for a while oh, that, that it's gonna naturally going to happen. No, no, it requires effort. Relentless effort. So all that, the time. Now let's transition into the marriage, yeah. the marriage life. You know, as I was telling you, I'm 24, and now I'm starting to think about my future with a woman and, and yeah. our livelihood and kids and my legacy. We turn the left here. Yeah, you want to go back to the house? Yeah, I think that's what. Yeah, make it. a left. So, so now I'm I'm starting to understand a little bit more about being a father as well as being a husband and an entrepreneur. Yeah. So share with me like your experience and how can you merge the both of being an entrepreneur and also being you know a father and a husband. Yeah. So obviously, when you are married and you have children and you're trying to build a business, it's not as easy. It's not cookie cutter. Uh, what you have to do is you have to be great at uh, multitasking. You have to have the uh, ability to have patience. Not everything's going to happen on your time, on your agenda. A lot of times, you know, uh, I may have something planned out for the day, but something comes up with the family, and then I have to prioritize it. So what I do is I find different pockets where I can get a lot of work done at like an accelerated rate. So like for example, kids go to bed at nine o'clock wife goes to bed at nine o'clock, I go to bed at midnight. I have three hours, I call them my power hours. Three hours of nobody bothering me in business. I'm not gonna say my family's bothering me, but, but they don't. Um, so I don't have any family obligations, which I love. I don't have any work obligations. It's just three hours of unfiltered time for me to do whatever I need to do. So that's my time I brainstorm, that's the time I visualize, that's the time I set the pace for the day following. Uh, the day ahead, and I also catch up on the day that just passed. So I find so discipline pockets. Is, is a necessity in your life to oh be, God, be able man. to match the three. Yeah. Listen, a lot of shit I do, I don't want to do, but I have to do. And discipline, you want to know one of my key character traits is I have like an unwavering and relentless discipline. To me, the definition of discipline is doing what you have to do, not what you want to do, even when the motivation is gone. So I just have found how to force myself to do the things that I don't want to do. And what are the, some of the things that you don't want to do? I don't want to wake up early. I don't want to go to bed late. I don't want to read books. I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to be productive. There's a lot of things. I, I'm a human. I want to procrastinate. I yeah. want to be lazy. I want to veg out and watch reality TV. I want to do a lot of shit that everybody else does, and I get moments of it, but 
I really push myself because I have created that discipline and eventually, unequivocally what happens is the more you force yourself to do the things that you don't want to do, eventually you actually enjoy doing them. I actually now enjoy reading a book. I enjoy going to seminars. I enjoy listening to podcasts, not all the time, but for the most part, because I've done it so often that something that I once despised and one, once you know, disliked and one thing I wasn't good at, I've done it and through the power of repetition. I've now enjoyed it and I've embraced it and I've mastered it. Gotcha. So it becomes enjoyable to me. So, so you've developed a system in your mind of how to pretty much be disciplined in all areas of your life. Yeah, when I don't, when I don't like doing stuff, and I know it's productive, and it's gonna like really benefit me in the long term, I just force myself to do it. You see, making decisions are not hard. What's hard is the time it takes to actually build up the courage to want to make that decision. Like Tony Robbins says, decisions, they happen instantly. You wanna quit smoking, you wanna start going to the gym, exactly. you wanna quit your job or start, it happens instantly. It's just building up the courage to want to make that decision, so, for me, I just, uh, I'm not the best decision maker. And you know, in the words of uh, Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln, I make my decisions quickly and I change them rarely. But what I learned is- Now, now do you make that off feelings? Okay, that's, so, that's the, that's the, do you make that decision off of feelings? You know, if I said I did, I'd be lying. A lot of decisions I make are grounded and rooted in logic. So does it take, it take you time? Does it take you time to make a decision? Oh yeah, it takes me time to like make big decisions, but there's an element that's instinctual, right? An element that you go with your gut, your instinct, and I've always learned, oh. I've always learned that, yeah, there you go. I've always learned that go with your gut, that feeling that you have, not not inside of your head, but inside of your gut, inside of your heart. Is good? So yeah, you're good. There's. Well, we're pulling in. We're pulling in the, 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 the yeah. Lambo so in right now. There's definitely an element of being grounded and rooted in logic, but there's an element of there has to be that emotional aspect. And you see, why I, I feared, and I hate this word, but I did. I feared making decisions. Is I thought I have to make ten decisions and they all have to be right. And then yeah, I realized right. over time that it's okay to be imperfect, and I don't have to make the right decisions all the time. I just have to make the right decisions more often than I make the wrong decisions. So out of every 10 decisions, I just gotta get like five or six right. So as an entrepreneur, and this is great for the viewers here, as an entrepreneur, when, you're make, when you make a decision and you, you, after making the decision, you recognize that it was in the best decision. Yeah. Do you shift rapidly or does it take you time to, to, to reconsider that decision and make a shift? Okay, so to explain that in a nutshell, I'm rigid in my vision, but I'm flexible in my approach. Definition of insanity wow. is performing the same action, expecting a different result. I realize that I need to change the actions. Put that in a quote. Yeah, I'm rigid in my vision, vision, but flexible in my approach. And I'll end off with this, is I've, I realize I'm gonna make bad decisions, but like Thomas Watson Jr. says, is the key to success is you must double your rate of failure. So I wanna expedite the learning curve, and I wanna accelerate how quickly I fail. And whether my decision is right or wrong, Henry Ford, my famous, my, my favorite quote, he says, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. So if I make a wrong decision, at the end of the day, I'm gonna treat it like it's the right decision. I'm gonna do whatever I can to make it work, and if it doesn't, I'm just gonna accept 
that I failed, I'm gonna chalk it up, that this didn't work, and I'm gonna move on. So what, you know, you're, what you're saying is that it's inevitable. So failure is inevitable. Yeah, well, on that note, so I am actually a professional. I'm not a professional at too many things. I am a bona fide professional at failing. I have failed okay. so many times in so many ways in my life, in my career, and I've learned from it, but I have this, uh, I have this analogy. So failing is acceptable, failure is not. What's the difference between failing and okay. failure? So failing is a verb. Okay. It's an action. It's part of the journey. Failure is a noun. It's a destination. It's an wow. end result. Failure is not falling. Failure is falling and refusing to get back up. So as long as you fall down seven times and you stand up eight, you are not a failure. You have just failed. Got it. So for me, I've embraced and accepted failing. And I've learned the quicker I fail, because I'm impatient by nature, right? Mm. I'm psycho-obsessive, compulsive-aggressive. I want to do shit, and I want to do it quick. So I've accepted that I'm going to fail. So the quicker I fail, quicker I learn, quicker I succeed. So fail first, and then, and then what, you, what you just shared with me is that the rate at which you fail, it will determine how successful you will become. Oh, yeah. So, you so wanna, if you fail fast, yeah. you can become faster, yeah. successful faster. You want to accelerate success? Expedite failing. Just do it quicker. It do, listen, I'm not saying it has to happen often, but it has to happen in order for you to reach where you want to go. As human beings, we don't learn from our successes. We learn from what we failed at because it gives us hindsight. When you're in the moment, what you see is the four walls around you. When you fail, what we do is we analyze what we failed at. So now what happens in retrospect is we get hindsight. So it takes you out of the room with the four walls and now gives you that bird's eye view. It changes your perspective. You never get perspective until you fail. So I don't know if it's fail first or fail forward. To me, it's just fucking fail fast.